You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It's also printed for you in the bulletin on page 10. But this morning we are continuing where we left off two weeks ago. Two weeks ago we looked together at the first half, really, of Ephesians 1. And then last week, Pastor Eric was here. And so today we are returning to Ephesians chapter 1 and picking up where we left off two weeks ago. So we will be reading from verses 15 into 23. Again, Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15 through 23, it says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Most of us, if you're like me, which I imagine, most of us pray before our meals, right? You pray and you give thanks for what you are about to receive, the food that you are about to receive. Now, of course, there would be no harm in praying after the meal, either, right? In fact, perhaps we should do both, right? But normally we pray before the meal. And again, for the sake of illustration, this also works because if you notice here in the verses that we just read, we find Paul, in a sense, praying not before the meal, but he's praying after the meal. Did you notice that? He prays after the meal, not a literal meal, of course, not a uh, you know, 99 cent order through Wendy's drive through or something you got on DoorDash, okay? Not a literal meal, but a theological or doctrinal meal that he delivered in verses three through 14, again, which we looked at two weeks ago. Paul is praying after this theological or doctrinal meal that we saw two weeks ago, again, in verses three through 14. If you remember, If you remember, and you can even look now in your own Bibles, but if you remember, in that section, again, verse 3 through 14, Paul opened his letter with this smorgasbord of praise, this all-you-can-eat buffet of praise where he is reflecting and, and, and just gazing upon all that God has done, the appetizer 
the entree, the dessert, if you will, of God's grace, the past, the present, the future. If you remember, we use the illustration of standing in a mirror, right? a hallway of mirrors where every which way you look, you see God at work behind, in front of you, and up ahead. That was Paul here in verses 3 through 14, again, gazing upon the buffet of God's grace as he thought and took note of, again, all of God's activity, past, present, and future, and he could not contain himself as he sort of waxed eloquent about all these things. I didn't point it out then, but, but you may have heard before that in verses 3 through 14, it's really actually in the Greek one sentence. There's no punctuation. There's no you know, breaks or stops. Paul doesn't take a breath. It's one continuous, kind of even grammatically incorrect, but run-on sentence. Why? Because Paul there is in his prison cell, and you can see him you know, pacing back and forth, and he is just overcome and overwhelmed by God's grace as he thinks of it in his life, again, past, present, and future, and he can't get the words out fast enough to his amanuensis, which is someone who dictates manuscripts, and that's likely how he got Ephesians. He is just, again, he is raptured. He is gazing and, and eating to the fill at the buffet of God's grace. He's pushing people out of the way. He's elbowing you know, to the front, grabbing that plate and just heaping on the gravy and the potatoes and everything, okay? And it's all about God's goodness and God's grace. I don't know about you guys, but do you remember Sonny's, Sonny's Barbecue? Used to be one on Lake Worth Road. Rest in peace, right? I remember growing up going to Sonny's, not that one, but I would eat all, the all you could eat barbecue and they'd always have the garlic toast. And just endless garlic toast, okay, or, or does anybody remember Quincy's? Is there ever a Quincy's? Good, okay, good, well, not alone. Central Florida, there was Quincy's, they had the, the big fat yeast roll, which is kind of an awkward name for a roll, but nevertheless, it was good, okay, and they would just, you know, baskets of rolls and rolls and rolls. That's the buffet here of God's grace, okay, that again, Paul is thinking about in verses 3 through 14. He can't get the words out fast enough, he can't feast on the reality of God's grace fast enough, but then after delivering that meal, after gorging himself in a good way on, on, on God's grace in verses 3 through 14, he then prays. He prays. He prays after the meal, if you will. For this reason, Paul says, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Notice that. Notice what or whom Paul prays for. He prays for you. The Apostle Paul, the letter writer of Ephesians, he prays for you. He prays for all who believe in the Lord Christ Jesus. And he prays that God would give us, if you keep reading, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's verse 17. A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, Paul prays, again, from his jail cell, for you, for me, for Christians at all places, at all times, and he prays that no matter where you find yourself, he prays that no matter what we find ourselves in the midst of, that God, again, the God who is above time and space, 
the God who is perfect in holiness and power, the God who has adopted us and chosen us and forgiven us and sealed us, would now go one step further and also give us a greater measure of his spirit and that the Holy Spirit would do something. If you notice, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes. That the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to really see, to really see things for what they are. Think about Paul's own life. Remember Paul when he was formerly Saul, the artist formerly known as Saul, right? Remember that? That was Paul, right? He was Saul and he was on the road to Damascus, if you recall, to persecute Christians, to persecute the church of God, and yet Jesus shows up miraculously in a vision to Paul. And if you remember, Paul himself went blind for three days. He goes blind for three days. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit works through a messenger, Ananias, right? And the eyes of Paul literally are opened, but so too. Is his heart. Well, Paul here prays again that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see God's hand of blessing, to see that which is most real, which is most true. Again, we look around us and we see so many things that discourage us. We see so many things to, to cause us anxiety or stress or to, to drag us down. But Paul says the Spirit can open your eyes to see things for what they really are, to see what is most true. Not to have our eyes open to material blessing, for again, that might come and go, right? Material blessing comes and it goes. Situational blessing, again, that, that comes and it, and it goes. That's easy to see, that's easy to believe when things are going well. But Paul here says, no, no, I pray that the Spirit, because only the Spirit can do it, would work the miracle in our life to see at all places and at all times God's invisible hand of blessing, those true spiritual riches, the, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that Paul has already talked about, that we would see those things no matter what, no matter the circumstance. And what are those blessings? What are those blessings that Paul prays for that we might know? Well, if you keep reading, he lists three of them, basically. He lists three of them. Paul says, I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to see the hope to which he has called you. That's verse 18. The hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's verse 19. Again, verse 18, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. So again, Paul wants us to see through the Spirit the hope, the riches, and the power that we actually are privy to, we actually have access to, again, by his grace through the Spirit. So let's just look at those in turn. Again, Paul prays that we would know beyond a doubt the hope to which we have been called to. Think about that word hope. The hope to which we have been called to. One of my favorite movies is the uh, 1994 classic, The Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption, which I hope you've seen. Um, if not, I'm about to spoil it for you. But again, it's been out now, what, 30 years? So yeah, you had time, sorry. But no, 94, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, it's based on actually a Stephen King novella. Ironically, it's one of the few you know, works of literature that King wrote that wasn't horror. 
but it's a little novella he wrote uh, called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, but it turned into a movie, you know, 1994. Great, great movie, a classic, really. It's actually on TNT all the time. So if you have TNT at home, you can probably pick it up, maybe even later today. It's always on. But again, the Shawshank Redemption, uh, 94 classic, and it features the story, or tells the story, of Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne, who is played very well by Tim Robbins. And Andy is wrongly sentenced to two life sentences for murder. And while he's in prison, he's eventually befriended by a man named Red, who is wonderfully played by Morgan Freeman, one of our great actors of our generation. But uh, Red, this man played by Morgan Freeman, and the movie has just tremendous dialogue, and uh, it's, a, it's a very human portrait, it even has some humor in it, but a very human portrait. Uh, but again, it tells a story of Andy's 20 years in prison, again, for a, a crime he did not commit, 20 years in prison until he breaks out, again, spoiler alert, he breaks out at the end in this just very moving and clever uh, and epic, dramatic fashion. But the movie's tagline, and I actually had this poster in my college dorm room, okay, at the Shawshank Redemption poster uh, in my college dorm room. The tagline for the movie was, fear can hold you prisoner, but hope can set you free. Fear can hold you prisoner, but hope can set you free. And for Andy, for Andy in that movie, you see it all throughout the film. It was the hope of knowing he was innocent. It was the hope of knowing that though he was a prisoner on the outside, so to speak, inside and rightfully and truthfully, he should have been a free man. And so it was this hope which drove him and literally kept him alive through terrible situations. And again, it was that hope that eventually drove him to make this daring and epic escape that he actually does at the end of the movie. Well, again, in a roundabout way, in a roundabout way, even even greater way, this is Paul as he writes Ephesians. And in meditating on Ephesians, this is our story, our truth as well. What propels Paul to speak of hope? What propels him to speak of hope, though he himself is a prisoner, is the knowledge that his present circumstance, his earthly predicament, if you will, can never jeopardize this truer reality about him, which is being an adopted member of God's family, which is being a child of God. Again, he is a, a prisoner in Rome, most likely, and so the Roman authorities, the powers that be, label him and think of him and call him a prisoner, but Paul knows there's somebody greater who calls him free, who calls him favored, who calls him loved and adopted and a child. So it's here that Paul realizes, and he wants us to as well, this hope that our present circumstances can never trump our permanent call. Our present circumstances, no matter what they are, can never overcome, can never trump our permanent call as a child of God, as an adopted member of his family whom he loves, who he favors, and whom he has great plans for. That's the truth of the gospel. That's our hope as Christians. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, and he speaks of his own experience, but it's ours too. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Think about your life. This light and momentary affliction, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for me, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, again, the things of this world, the things that we can see are transient, they're changing, they're fleeting. The things that are unseen, the realities of God, are eternal. Are eternal. What propels Paul to speak of hope, though he himself, again, is a prisoner, is the knowledge that, spiritually speaking, God has set him free. Paul's sin, our sin, what does the devil do when he brings those things to mind? Again, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. Okay, he's uh, wrongfully accused, if you will. Okay, he's unjustly in prison for, for something that he did, but it's a good thing, right? He preaches the gospel. But then think about it spiritually speaking. Again, Paul's sin, though, also set him as a prisoner. Our sin makes us a prisoner. The devil prowls around. He wants us to remember all of these things which were held captive to in our sin, and the devil calls us guilty. And again, we are on our own. We are apart from God. But in Christ, through his mercy, what are we now? We're forgiven. We're free. We've been ransomed. We've been bought. We are redeemed. There's that great Chris Tomlin refrain in his reworking of Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. You see, that's the hope we have. That's the hope as children of God that whether it was our, the prison of our original sin, whether it was the prison of our guilt before God, or whether it's a prison we feel that we're in now, circumstantially, maybe because of something we've done, a bad decision, a poor choice, or maybe a prison we feel like we're in simply because the world has dealt us a bad hand, tragedy, misfortune, Paul reminds us those prison doors have been thrown open by Christ. That we have a hope. That fear, fear can hold us prisoner. Whether it's fear over past sins or past mistakes, whether it's the fear of daily life in this world, but hope can set us free. Hope in the finished work of Christ in our salvation and the hope of Christ's presence with us now, again, no matter the circumstance. Fear can hold us prisoner, but hope the hope of your calling can set you free. It can set you free. So again, this is the first thing that Paul asks for in his prayer, that we might know the hope to which we have been called to. But he keeps praying, and he says, I also want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's our second thing. Again, the hope to which we've been called. But also, Paul says, I pray you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. When Channing, my daughter, was still learning to speak properly, she had uh, trouble 
figuring out when to say his, him, or he. Right? She had trouble with that, you know, that working. His, him, or he. So she would often say things like, those are, you know, those are he's things. You know, Wyatt would leave stuff in the living room. Oh, those are, those are him's clothes. He's, you know, his, he's stuff, okay? And of course, we found it adorable. And in some way, you know, as a parent, you don't want it to change because, you know, it reminds you they're still a kid. But she would have trouble kind of delineating between the different uses of, of that word. Well, I mention that because it's interesting here, if you notice in the text, notice that word, his. His. Again, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We just talked about that. And also, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul doesn't say, my inheritance in the saints, thinking of himself. Paul doesn't say, your inheritance in the saints, thinking about us. But what does he say? He says, his inheritance in the saints. Who's he talking about? God. He's talking about God's inheritance. If you remember, back in verses 11 through 14, again, two weeks ago, Paul spoke about our inheritance. Again, our inheritance as Christians, as children of God. We have been gifted, we have, been inher- we have inherited the blessings of God. Again, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we have inherited such based upon, again, the fact that God has adopted us. He has brought us into his family, and he has made us heirs. He has given us gifts. And that guarantee, again, was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's incredible. You know, that itself is amazing and humbling and overwhelming. It's an inheritance we know can never be taken away, can never spoil, can never fade, can never perish, as Peter later says in his letter. And again, that's part of the hope to which we've been called to, that idea of our inheritance as the children of God. But then here, notice how in Paul's prayer, he wants our astonishment. He wants our amazement to be dialed up even another notch by realizing that God, too, has his own inheritance. God, too, has his own reward. And what is it? What is it? It's you. It's you. It's me. Think about that for a second. Think about that. Paul wants us to know, Paul begs God through prayer to let us know that you, that you are his precious inheritance, that you are his great reward, that you are exactly why he went to the lengths that he did at creation and at the cross. And Paul says, I pray, I beg God to reveal to you, to help you see that you might not think a lot of yourself. You might feel worthless or you might feel trivial or insignificant. You might feel like an underachiever in life, a failure. You might feel second rate. The world may label you a thousand different things. But God in the gospel, 
God in the gospel of Christ Jesus and Paul here in his prayer says you, faults and all, imperfections and all, failures and underachievements and shortcomings and all, you are my inheritance, my reward, that you are my precious and treasured possession. Again, Paul says, I want you to know that. The hope of your calling, the glorious, inherit, the glorious riches of God's inheritance in you. And so we can have hope and encouragement. We can have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We can get out of bed again and again and again and face the rigors and routines of life when we realize that God looks down on us in Christ and he sees treasure. He sees treasure, he sees riches, he sees the wealth of his inheritance and reward again, which is you. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Who are the saints? Yes, they're a football team in the NFC, right? Down in New Orleans, okay? Yes, saints are people that we emblazon in stained glass, But both those things miss the mark. Saints, as they are defined by Paul in Scripture, are simply those who trust in Christ. Saints are people who, again, are not perfect, but who are trusting in the perfect one and who have been set apart. That's where the word kind of derives from, saints and sanctified. It means you have been set apart, not by your goodness, not by your perfection, but because you're trusting in the goodness and perfection of God, which makes you a saint, a child, his treasured possession and reward. But then lastly, lastly for today, because we'll look at this passage again, lastly for today, Paul prays we might know one other thing, one other thing, the hope to which we've been called, the glorious inheritance of God and the saints, but then lastly, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's in verse 19. Paul says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That word power is overused, right? We, I mean, power can mean a lot of things. Power is a very, very common word, and so we might miss the force here, but thankfully, Paul will qualify it there. If you notice, what power is directed towards us? What power is directed towards us who believe? Divine power? Sure. Supernatural power? Of course. Heavenly power? Yes. All of the above. But then he gives us an example, if you will. He puts it in action. Look at how the verse continues. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of God's great might that he worked where? In Christ, when he raised him from the dead. He wants to give us this like uh, metric, if you will, to understand the power at work in our salvation and also in our lives still today. Because it is immeasurable, right? It cannot be quantified, we have to now see an action to really get an understanding of it. I've used this illustration before, so forgive me, I only have so many. Uh, but I've talked about Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld talks about how the, uh, the horsepower, remember that? Horsepower, we measure everything in horsepower, you know, cars have horsepower, lawnmowers have horsepower. But he says, at what point are we actually insulting the horse? Right, because you know, you ride on a horse that has one horsepower, but then you get in a car that has 300, that seems a bit insulting. 
right? Can't we eventually come up with a new metric that's a little more, you know, equitable? And the, the analogy he uses is uh, the rocket ship. When, when we used to have space shuttles still, you know, NASA, the rocket booster attached to the space shuttle has 20 million horsepower. And Seinfeld says, I mean, what's the chances of that rocket booster breaks down? We're going to round up 20 million horses, you know, to do the job. It doesn't work, right? There's no comparison. We got to come up with a new metric, right? Well, in a similar way, that is Paul here. What is the power at work in our salvation? What is the power at work in our life? He says, look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. Why can God be trusted above all earthly powers no matter what? Because he has the power to raise a dead man to life and then seat that dead man, namely Christ, in the position of honor. Because again, when you trust something, again, let's say, use the car example again. I have a Ford Expedition, okay, SUV, okay? I know it's towing capacity, right? If I'm gonna put a trailer on that thing, I know how much it can tow based upon the horsepower, right? Based upon the weight rating, all that kind of thing. So if I'm gonna make a decision, I'm gonna trust it based on what I know about its abilities, right? I'm not gonna hook up a 53-foot trailer that they brought the pumpkins in, right, on my expedition, because it doesn't have the power, okay? Now in your own life, think about that. Why can we trust God beyond all measure? Why can we trust God no matter the circumstances, no matter what the world throws at us? Because Paul here says there is a power being directed to you that is immeasurable, that cannot be quantified, but can be seen in the empty tomb, in the resurrection of Jesus. And so you can trust God, why? Because he's given us an example of his power. He's given us the greatest example of his power which is the empty tomb of Christ, which is the resurrection of Jesus, a real historical example of what God is capable of. And then Paul says, amazingly, that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you. In you. That doesn't mean that you have the power to raise somebody from the dead. That's not what Paul means. But he's saying that same power that God directed toward Christ and raised is the same power now being directed to you as God preserves you, as God protects you, as God works out his plans in your life. That the same power that was directed towards the tomb is the same power that God now directs to us, towards us, as he guards us and he guides us, as he preserves us, and he leads us, and if we want an example of whether or not that same God can be trusted, we look at the empty tomb, and how did that work out? How'd that work out? God always delivers on his promises. So for today, may Paul's prayer be our prayer. May God continue to reveal and remind us of our hope, our riches, in him, in the power at work in our lives, by his grace, now and forever. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for this truth. We thank you for this reminder of your actions and your activity on our behalf 
not just in the past, but also even now in the present. You are still with us, guiding us, leading us, completing the good work that you began in our salvation. So Lord, continue to encourage us and strengthen us, we pray, for the daily walk of life that you have called us to. Trusting, trusting ultimately in the hope that we have in you and in the power that you have directed our way in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.